0: Psalm 49, hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb, with a harp I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. Ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of the followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning, the forms will decay in the grave far from the princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived and counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Thanks for the reading,
1: Nick, and let me add my welcome to Nick's. Uh, My name's Rod, if you are visiting or new, and as you've heard, we're working through these psalms, and this is a wisdom psalm tonight as we uh, look at uh, a very interesting topic in the light of our society today. Um, But before um, I pray and we have a look at this psalm together. Just one further announcement I want to make on behalf of our elders. Um, we realize at a time like this that some people um, have been affected again by um, Omicron variant and uh, may be facing difficulty or loss of um, employment and so forth. At the start of the pandemic, our church set up a care fund or a benevolent fund Um which we really haven't used, but if there are those that are in need um, at this time, we want to make that offer again. Um, Please uh, speak to one of the pastors. We'd love to uh, make finances available. If that can assist anyone, uh, please let us know. Let me pray for us as we come to God's Word and ask that he'll um, help us as we think through uh, this challenging section. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the freedom to gather tonight. Uh, We thank you that at this time of the year, uh, for some of us at least, there is a chance to slow down, uh, there's a chance to reflect, uh, to have a break from the normal patterns. And we pray that as we come to your word and as we think about it together now, that you might be at work powerfully through your spirit in us, applying your word to our hearts and minds. Help us to hear your voice clearly. And as we think about the year that is ahead of us, uh, that we might live in the light of this passage. we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, I read the biography of Jimi Hendrix, that famous rock star uh, from the 1960s, who's still arguably uh, the most innovative guitarist ever. Uh, But he had the poorest of beginnings, uh, growing up in an African-American family in Seattle that really struggled to clothe and feed him. And it was a very dysfunctional family. Uh, He has several siblings, um, but both his parents um, were alcoholics and there was separation in different parts of the family at times. His mother um, died of alcoholism when he was just 15 years old, and his father, who tended to beat him uh, when he was drunk, often wasted the little money that they had as a family. And so from a young age, Jimmy was forced to fend for himself, to go and sponge meals from uh, friends and family members. And he watched as his family got moved around to different government housing estates and saw his family shrink as different siblings were fostered out to other families in Seattle. So despite living like this and then eventually dropping out of high school uh, midway through, he would suddenly have this uh, meteoric rise to fame in 1967. He'd be discovered by this manager who took him straight to England where instantly he was a success and faded by the famous bands of the day, the Beatles. Uh, Eric Clapton, Rolling Stones loved Jimi Hendrix. And within 12 months, he'd returned to the US where he became just as famous um, overnight. And so he goes from being this penniless musician to actually um, making $100,000 at a single concert in June of 1969. And you'd be forgiven for thinking as you sort of read the first part of his biography that this is your classic rags to riches story, that this is a good news story. But if you know anything of his life and tales, um, it's a pretty sober ending. He dies at just the mere age of 27 from a drug overdose, and he exits this life with very little, just as he had begun it. It would prove in the years to come that his estate would be worth something because of all the royalties from his songs, but he never saw any of that. His family, as so often, sadly happens, then fought over that in the decades that followed. But in death, he returned to how he started life, with nothing. And tonight, we're going to look at the great leveller of death and think about what counts, what matters in this life. You notice in this psalm that there's this clear introduction in verses 1 to 4 where the psalmist is really trying to grab our attention so that we might give heed to what he's about to say. Have a look again at verses 1 to 4 with me. Hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding." I'll turn my ear to a proverb, with the harp I will expound my riddle. Well, I guess in the opening two verses there, uh, the sons of Korah, the psalmists this section, have, are saying they've got a message for everyone. This is a, a universal truth that they want to unpack, which applies to people from every tribe, every nation, every class of society, uh, rich and poor alike, And it's not simply for the Israelites, God's chosen Old Covenant people, but this is a word to all people in their common humanity. And therefore, it's a message for you and I this evening. I think so often we hear a topic like this one in particular, or sometimes any part of scripture, and we think this would be a really good message for (laughs) so-and-so, or my neighbour, or somebody else. But the psalmist is saying, no, this is something we all need to hear and reflect on. And secondly, did you notice in this introduction um, that not only is it a universal message, uh, but it is wisdom worth hearing. It echoes the terms and the teaching of the book of Proverbs, which is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. The writer even refers, did you notice, in verse 4 to this psalm being a form of a proverb that's why it's a wisdom psalm. It's uh, very different from a large collection of the psalms, which are often focused on our worship of God, praising him for his creation and so forth. And, of course, as he goes on to speak about what's important here, it is part of our life of worship. But really the focus here is an instruction on how people should live. What is the wise way to live in this short life that we're given? And the word translated, expound in verse 4, is literally open. He infers the writers are going to open up this problem and they're going to solve it, is what sits behind that phrase. And so if you like, in verses 1 to 4, it's like a big neon sign and he's wanting to say to everyone that will hear this word, listen up, this is worth your hearing. And so tonight we're going to think about a question uh, that pulls together what's important in life. And my question that... Is drawn out of this passage is this. What counts at the end of our life? What is it that counts at the end of your life? I've got two answers to that question this evening. The first of them is this, that it's not trusting in worldly wealth. It's not trusting in worldly, worldly wealth. Here's his main point, which he's really going to unpack throughout the psalm, which unfolds from verse 5. So have a look with me again, verses 5 to 10 they write why should i fear when evil days come when wicked deceivers surround me those who trust in their wealth who boast of their great riches no one can redeem the life of another or give to god a ransom for them the ransom for a life is costly no payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay for all can see that the wise die and that the foolish And the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. I guess what we see firstly in these verses is that money can't defeat death. Uh, No one can pay God a ransom to avoid death. Sometimes people today spend a lot of money trying to extend life, right? Um, But it can never extend it beyond the days that God will grant a person. And therefore, death is the great leveller. You know, though people might rightly complain uh, that life is not a level playing field. You know, some people are born into wealth, some are born into poverty, some are presented with great opportunity from day one, Uh, some have great difficulty, but death, the psalmists argue, ends all such disparity. Not only do the rich and poor alike die, but both the wise and the foolish perish, and they're going to leave whatever they might have accumulated to others. We're all at the same footing when it comes to the end of our life. And any wealth that we might have obtained is really nothing before God. And not only is money no help in avoiding death, the psalmist wants to say, it's no help in the life to come because you can't take it with you. It's the famous saying, isn't it? Notice where it comes from in one sense here in verses 16 and 17, the closing paragraph of this psalm. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendour of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendour will not descend with them. You know, The answer to the question, how much did he or she leave behind, is always everything. And, of course, that truth doesn't stop people trying to take it with them, as if grasping and holding on to things to the last moment can somehow help us. I guess the Egyptian pharaohs were our earliest known example of doing this. They often tried to take their treasures with them, and so they'd be well looked after in their mind in the next life, such as Tutankhamun, that famous uh, ruler whose tomb was discovered in 1922. But it wasn't just the pharaohs; it wasn't just the richest or the rulers that did so. Um, it was commonplace for all Egyptians in that period. Even if you were a poor person, you would be buried with some goods to supposedly assist you. And so, bowls or combs or other trinkets would be laid with the body. And if you were wealthy, like Tutankhamun, well, you could afford to be buried buried with all your jewelry and furniture and other valuables you might even take a boat with you. You never know. Transportation might be helpful. But sadly, and we could sort of look back at that and see there's an emptiness to that. It's they're just treasures that somebody digs up centuries later. But some people try a similar thing today. Lonnie Holloway of Saluda, North Carolina, was buried on Tuesday, the eighth of September, two thousand and nine, in his car, with his guns in the trunk. And some extra cash, a $100 bill placed in his pocket. The 90 year old's friends claimed that he always said that he was going to be buried in his 1973 Pontiac Catalina, and that's just what happened. Uh, the unusual burial followed uh, a service uh, at Rock Hill Baptist Church in Saluda, where hundreds of people attended, and a friend at the funeral stated, Look, Lonnie said that they're going to have me with my hat on, driving down the road when I die. Well, uh, after Lonnie and his car had been buried, they put a large concrete slab on top of the grave uh, just to keep the looters away from the guns. You never know. It all seems a little ludicrous, doesn't it, as we hear a story like that. But there's a sense in which people are doing that in our society all the time in different ways, maybe not quite so blunt at the end of their life. What is the fate of those who trust in themselves and their possessions? Well, the psalmist is keen to keep spelling that out over and over so that we just don't miss it. It's a sobering truth, but have a look again. Verse 11 to 14. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. It doesn't really make for a light bedtime reading a psalm like this. And perhaps you're thinking that already, that this is a bit of a downer at the start of the year as I look forward to 2022. Is this the message I need to hear? Well, I think the psalmist would say yes. Um, So often we want to push it to the side, but he wants to say this is a universal truth that we need to grasp hold of and live in the light of because it's so seductive. Trust in yourself and your possessions that you've lived for and you'll perish eternally. That is the fate of those who live just for this world. And if your possessions or your comfort becomes your God, it can't be any other way. They will grab hold of your soul and you'll have no room for your maker to gain your affection. You have no space for him because your heart has been taken by something else. And if we're misled into such a materialistic view of our lives, then the psalmist wants to rebuke us even further and say, well, we're like a dumb animal. We're like a beast that perishes without any understanding. Verse 20. You know, there was an acquaintance of Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor in the 19th century, a Reverend John Leafchild, who was a, an Anglican bishop in Ireland. And he spoke with Spurgeon about a person who uh, was in his church but lived simply for material possessions. And he talked about how he went to visit him when he was on his deathbed, to visit him to try and explain the gospel again, to talk about the hope that he could have. But as this man lay dying and he spoke with him and prayed with him, he was surprised as he offered to take the man's hand and pray that the man was unwilling to do so. And he sort of battered the idea away, and he muttered, "Oh, he hadn't done the right thing, he hadn't supported uh, Christianity, he hadn't given anything to the church, and he requested the minister tell him what he thought would become of him. And so Leafchild called on him to repent. He said, "We well, need to give up these things. We need to relinquish all these worldly thoughts." Trust in Jesus. He's the only way that you can have safe pardon, salvation. You have to be prepared for what you're about to enter. But to his shock, there was this continued look of disappointment on the man's face. And he asked him why he looked so downcast. And the man explained that the reason he wouldn't take his hand is that under the bedclothes he was grasping the key to his treasures a little cabinet across the room that had all his valuables in it so fearful that somebody would take them away from him that that was what was most important to him and leafchild said i left his house distressed that this man should leave this world with his fingers stiffened in death around the keys of his treasure and what an empty treasure I mean, surely the application, if you are a believer here tonight, is not to live for the things of this world, but to live for God. We've already seen in verses 5 and 6 that we should not fear those around us who seem to bel- uh, boast rather in their wealth and their riches, who think they have it all together, that they don't need God, and sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, maybe maybe they're right and lose and drift from our assurance in Christ, as if this world is all that there is. And, of course, we're surrounded by that today. I don't have to tell you that Australian society is fiercely materialistic. You know, politics is about making the economy go well ultimately Sport these days is about making money. Every sports uh, show on TV is surrounded by ads on betting. It just, it's just a wash, isn't it? The whole time. Make money, make money. And it's how we're measured as individuals. What's the first job that, uh, first question rather, that people ask you when they meet you? What's your job? They're asking that question so they don't have to ask the second more impolite question, how much do you earn? Because if you tell them your job, then they can work out in ballpark figures at least and see where you sit in the pecking order and whether they feel superior to you because of their station in life. It's a sad way to think about our world, and the result is that the Packers and the Murdochs of the world get set up on a pedestal when they shouldn't be. Or maybe it's just... The Joneses next door. Apologies to those in the front row. We do have some Joneses across the street. Um, Of course, such values are nonsense in God's economy. God laughs at such an approach. How can these things be of value when we finally stand before him on the Day of Judgment? There was an Anglican bishop in the 17th century named Ezekiel Hopkins who got quite riled up on this subject some years ago and he wrote, "'How foolish to account yourself better than another because your trash hill is a little bigger. These things are not to be reckoned in the value and worth of an individual. They're all outside of you and they concern you no more than fine clothes affect your health or the strength of your body.' It is wealth indeed that makes all the noise and bustle in the world and gathers all the respect and honour to himself. The ignorant vulgar whose eyes are dazzled with pomp pay it a stupid and astonished reverence. Yet know this, it is only your velvet and your lands and your income which they venerate. It is not you. Well, he's right. Uh, Wealth is often seen as the measure of success in this life. But God says, it's not. It's just a passing mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Everything you have has been given to you by God and he can take it away at any moment also. And so surely what we need to do is to be careful about what we're honouring. We don't want to be overawed by the wealthy in this life. We don't want to be envious of the next-door neighbour or anybody else. Keep a close watch on your mind. Don't be drawn into the disease of 21st century Australia. It's a disease which Christians are not necessarily immune to either. In a world of vaccinations, uh, if only we could inoculate ourselves against rampant consumerism, which places more value on things than on people and on relationship with God. I'd be first in line for that. That brings me to a second answer to our question of what counts at the end of our life. What counts at the end of our life? Well, not wealth, but rather being rich towards God. Being rich towards God. What's the fate of those who do trust in God rather than themselves and their possessions? Well, have a look. Verses 14 and 15 There's this moment in the psalm where the psalmist write, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms, that is those who hold on to wealth, will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. You see, for the unbeliever, even for one who has named lands after themselves and lived in princely mansions, the one piece of real estate that they'll continue to occupy in this metaphor is the grave. However, notice firstly for the believer that in verse 15, he or she will be redeemed from the grave. Here is the great contrast of verse 7 solved for us. Remember, God demanded a ransom, and yet it was a ransom that no one could pay for the life of another. How could you redeem another person? How could they be brought out of the grave, given eternal life? Well, finally, I think in verses 14 and 15, we've got a shadow of the atonement, of the once for all payment made by Christ. That is the ransom that will work. That is the only payment that will be received by God as sufficient. And that's why Jesus in Mark 10.45 said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that language of ransom, I think sometimes uh, Christians are uncomfortable with it. Uh, commentators often worry that we might push the ransom language too far in Mark 10 and then start to wonder about, well, who is God making a payment to? Is, Is God paying off someone so that we're redeemed from the grave? Is he paying Satan? That can't be right. Who is God ransoming us from through the death of Jesus? Well, I think... The context of Psalm 49 answers that question really clearly for us. The ransom is from the grave or sheol in the Hebrew, the place of the dead. The grave or sheol is viewed as having custody, if you like, of the sinner from which God redeems the believer. And so wonderfully, the believer's fate is quite different to the unbeliever because he or she has been bought by God. And we know from the New Testament that the purchase price is the precious blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. And secondly, therefore, not only is the believer redeemed from the grave, but he or she will go to be with God. Notice we have that phrase. It's beautiful. He will surely take me to himself. That phrase, take me to himself, is more literally receive me. He will receive me. There's this vision of the future here. It's looking beyond the grave to eternal life, being present with God. The idea here is that nothing can separate us from our master. God's concern for us is loving and active, and he will intervene. It's very personal language. He will take us to be with himself. And so not only is the resurrection of the dead in view, but what is to come following that. Now, again, as we read a psalm like Psalm 49, people will say, but we don't really have clear expressions of the resurrection and that doctrine in the Old Testament, do we? Like suddenly it seems like it appears in the New Testament. Well, it's true that there's much more written about that theme in the New Testament, but there are hints of it in the Old Testament, including here in Psalm 49. But perhaps one of the best is in Daniel 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting content. There's a two ways to live line for us, isn't there? And finally, on the resurrection, it's also inferred in this description of the believers who are upright, ruling over or prevailing over others, uh, talking about our future role with God in heaven which is incredible to think through. It picks up a theme that, again, the New Testament uh, develops further, and some will see it as mainly just a a promise that the victims of this life will somehow have the tables turned on their oppressors. But I think there's much more going on here. It's looking forward to the resurrection, being with God in heaven, and having this role of being entrusted along with our Saviour Christ (laughs) that we might rule over God's creation. What a comforting and contrasting fate for those who are God's people to be redeemed, to be received by God, to be given the honour of ruling under God. Now, I think the application, as we conclude, of uh, this wonderful and undeserved inheritance for those who trust in Jesus is surely to long for that day. It's to long for heaven to really see that this world is just something that we're passing through and that our true home is elsewhere. The Apostle Paul makes that point several times in his letters in the New Testament. But let me just take you to one in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul states, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's one of many uh, great passages in the New Testament about our future hope. And such longing for the future is not some, you know, wistful, vague hopeful reflection that sees us, you know, wanting to escape this life here, just hoping for a better day. No, it's a purposeful thinking about what is to come. That means we should live in the light of the future now. If we have that certain assurance of an inheritance in the future, how should that shape us as we act day to day in this life? Well, it should determine how we live Heaven being with God is a very practical doctrine. It should mean all the difference as we live in this fallen world. I want to ask you, I guess, as we conclude, do you have that single-minded focus on the future? You know, as we set out on a new year, 2022, there's probably a a hundred things in your mind about what might unfold this year. Study you've got to do, what's happening at work. And these are all important things that we'll have to step through And only God knows what's happening tomorrow and the day after and the week after. But is your mindset one that is simply focused on the here and now? Is it just what's going to happen to get ahead, to compete in the earthly race of accumulation? Or is your mindset on something far greater, who you are in Jesus and where you're actually going? I think Christians struggle with this because there's not a lot of encouragement for us to have that outlook. Everyone, it seems, is living for now. Our lives are so often shaped by our present pressures and circumstances. How long has it been since you sat down and thought about where you're heading for a full hour? The Puritans, I've said this a few times and shared in sermons, the Puritans had it as part of their devotional life, their discipline, that they would spend an hour every morning thinking about heaven. Now, even when I listen to myself saying that phrase, I feel rising up in me this pragmatism that says, I haven't got an hour in the morning to do that. I'm too busy. I have to get on with the next task that I'm doing. There's something wrong about that gut reaction, if that's yours. Whether in England or the Pilgrims to America, this was their practice, morning after morning. And our pragmatism today makes us think that such an activity is irrelevant. I guess I want to say to you tonight that what I am convinced of is this, that it's not, and that our lack of a future orientation is often a guide as to how much we are consumed by the things of this world. See, I started tonight by asking the question, what counts at the end of your life? What will matter when your life is over? Death, it's the great leveller. It makes money and possessions of this world, not to mention our career, our achievements, That all counts for nothing if we don't know God. The only thing that counts is our trust in God and his work in his world. Through his son, ultimately, his death and resurrection, that is drawing as a result a people that are God's very own true faith in him. This is what matters. Please consider this universal truth as you start out on 2022 that your life should look different to those around you if you have placed your trust in Christ, that that will be seen and obvious in the way you live, in the things you give your time to, in the things that you avoid. Let me pray that we will all be rich towards God, that that will be our aim this year, to live with our eternal inheritance in mind, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that our world is full of bright lights, distractions that so often can cause us to drift in our attention from you, our desire to focus on you and to serve your kingdom, to have a heavenly mindset rather than an earthly one. And Lord, we need your help. By your spirit indwelling in us, Lord, challenge us afresh tonight, we pray, that we might set out in this year determined to be those with your help that will have a mindset which means that we are rich towards you and that the things of this world will just grow strangely dim in the light of that. Lord, we ask for your help to this end. In Christ's name, amen.